Hi everyone, and welcome to the RegTech Report, your update on all things RegTech. My name is Carl Viertel, and with me is Stefan Celestio. Our mission is to bring you the latest news, speak with industry pioneers, and news about the latest tech. Welcome back to the seventh episode of the RegTech Report. With me today, Stefan Zalistio. Hello, everyone. And later, actually, a new guest to the pod. Um, one of my co-founders, Matthias, will be joining. Um, we've got a, uh, a really cool topic today. We're going to be talking about risk culture. Um, one of the really driving uh, forces in regulation today, one of the driving forces in what risk security and compliance professionals are trying to engage with in the organization. Um, a little bit later, uh, we'll also talk about the news. I've got a full list of really cool things that have been going on and, of course, the top three. But uh, first of all, risk culture. Now, um, I'm always amazed when um, I read new publications from the German re uh, financial regulator Bafin um, in how you can produce a German sentence that contains the word Risikokultur, um, which is risk culture in German, um, that often and still be a complete sentence. Um, at the same time, um, for example, the Center for Internet Security, CIS, also wrote a guide on security culture. Um, so my question to you, Stefan, why are people not engaged today? Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's always been a bit difficult and people always looked uh, on this thing, security and risk, a bit technocratic. Um, so, I mean, just from my personal experience, looking back at previous roles when I was a CISO, one of my favorite stories <laughs> was when uh, starting that job that um, people basically came to me and said, are we going live tomorrow with this app? Can you just do like a quick security check and approve it? And yeah, there's not really <laughs> enough time, right? So, but that basically points into a certain um, situation um, that is quite common, I would say, when uh, organizations start to take the stuff more seriously from the initial or doing nothing phase, where they start putting um, people on this job, yeah, people taking care of this full time. And the immediate effect you will see in a lot of um, companies is that um, the maturity goes down because everybody else in the company will start saying, ah, look, now we have this security person or compliance or data privacy or whatever. And they'll fix it all. Yeah, they, it's their <laughs> job. I, I don't have anything to do with that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also a factor of just people just being disengaged and not interested in the topic, mm -hmm. right? If you don't approach people or you have to make it snackable, you have to make it attractive for people. And I think a lot of times it just traditionally isn't. Yeah. Now, I found this um, interesting quote from a uh, company called Security Journey. They do like security and risk trainings. And um, uh, a quote from, uh, from one of their guys was, security is widespread and mainstream, but security culture has not kept pace with the threat landscape. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting, right? Because um, they even say uh, culture is, you know, is affecting the threats to the business, which you can apply not just to security, but for risk mm -hmm. in, in a larger sense. And there's always this good Peter Drucker quote, right? Culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? So <laughs> people uh, have a lot of plans for or like installing appliances and boxes and the thing that's it's off the problem. But in the end, it comes kind of back down to people and how people interact is culture in a lot of ways. Agreed. Um, now, we're all sort of experiencing a generation shift in business, right? So um, we're all talking about millennials and, and how they use uh, mobile devices and people, you know, growing up without even knowing a world that wasn't digital and not mobile and all the rest of it. Um, 
So let's say uh, we all address risk culture today and we find a way that everyone is fully engaged in the process and uh, – over the next five to ten years, the entire workforce is replaced by millennials and uh, the generations after. Do we have to restart again? Um, yeah, probably yes, but I think it's also a good chance, right, to uh, maybe try to do some things differently. And um, probably everybody who's been working in that field for a long time, they know the situation that everybody else kind of hates them and, and uh, consider consider these roles as a blocker or a party pooper yeah? and then again, the typical complaint of a risk compliance security person is uh, nobody takes me seriously. Everybody is opposed. Uh, I don't get any money, uh, resources. But you know, Stefan, by definition, you're obviously not millennial. I am. So you know, if you need any help on you know addressing millennials, <laughs> yeah. just just just, just well, let me know. It depends. <laughs> it depends on the definition, right? Uh, but I guess I'm a xillennial um, yeah, because uh, I was born in the period between the. Uh, uh, a New Hope, Star Wars, and Return of the Jedi, right? So, uh. Wonderful frame of reference. <laughs> no, but I, but I actually do think that um, it is very much a, general, a generational question in how you engage people in a process. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think a lot of – or a lot of uh, processes were probably more hierarchical driven um, previously and was more sort of a top down and this is how it is done obviously also due to the technology available but with uh, you know people consistently engaged in social media and modern technology I think uh, winning businesses will certainly think of much much smarter ways to engage people mm -hmm. in risk and security processes than they are today. Yeah and it's maybe also the shift we had the last time regarding uh, going from a transactional mindset to a transformational uh, also on the leadership perspective, because what what often happened in the past is that um, um, basically people on both sides, yeah, both in the in the risk security department on the business side, didn't really understand each other and especially didn't understand the why. So business didn't understand why was the security guy saying oh, you should have to you have to do these things, and on the other hand the um, the uh, yeah security folks. Um, they, they often had no clue about what was the priority of the business or how does the business even operate. Well, thankfully, the RegTech report is here to bridge that gap. And we're back, and I'm very happy to introduce a new guest to the pod, one of my co-founders, Matthias. Welcome to the podcast, Matthias. Thanks, Carl, and uh, hello to everyone. Thanks for having me. Very cool. So Stefan and I were just talking about risk culture, active security culture. And uh, for our listeners, um, you may know, so at Align, uh, part of our platform is also providing regulatory information through our library. So basically interpreting and analyzing all of uh, the regulations, standards, laws that are included in the platform, and then in, uh, providing that as content to our users. Now, the person that is in all of that pain and depth of international regulation is Matthias. So I wanted to have you yeah. on and uh, give us your view on sort of some of the regulations that really address risk culture and security culture. Now, one of the really huge projects you did over the last couple months uh, was uh, introduce the um, uh, information security manual from the Australian government. So it used to be the Australian Signals Directorate. Today, it's the Australian Cybersecurity Centre. Um, uh, what were your, uh, your observations? How did they address culture in that standard? 
Um, let me probably first begin with uh, a bit talking you through a bit of, of what the ISM is, because it's really a remarkable piece of regulation, I think. So it's something that applies to Australian government agencies, um, created with that view on, on government data. So they have things in there like uh, confidentiality ratings, including secret, top secret things for government agencies within Australia, outside of Australia, etc. So like it's, if you're building an embassy in Istanbul, well, no, it wouldn't be Istanbul, obviously, in Ankara um, for the Australian government, then the ISM would apply to you. Exactly. And they would have specific regulations what to do different than if you were an agency within Australia. Mm. Now, you could say that obviously a, um, a guide like that has to be very, very prescriptive because, you know, it's obviously um, aligned with military and all the rest of it. But at the same time, there's still people, right? So there has to be culture aspects. Do you have some examples of sort of both ends of that spectrum? Absolutely. So um, they are very specific. They have uh, around a thousand controls. They slimmed it down now a bit. But um, I'd, I'd say there there's these very hard technical uh, rules like you have to have air gaps between network equipment that's top secret and, and other uh, confidential uh, classifications. But there is a lot about uh, behaviors, how to create your security organizations, what kind of roles do you have in there, what's their responsibilities, how to uh, report cybersecurity incidents within the organization without, when to do that, etc., how to um, handle information holding, media deleted, and so on. Mm. So essentially not just specifying what needs to be done, but how you collaborate on doing that. Absolutely. Okay, very cool. So, I mean, one of the things that uh, obviously I was involved in the project as well, and like even the uh, they specify what color which cables have to do uh, have to have depending on what they're transmitting and where they are. Um, I mean, it's hard to see culture there, but um, what I really liked about the the standard is that they do actually address people, and people are at the core of what they do. Absolutely, and uh, I think it's a it's a really well written guide. It's super well structured as compared to some other things we have seen. Um, quite granular, but also uh, quite prescriptive uh, in the sense of you, you can get something very concrete out of it on what to do in what area and and how to do that. Now, uh, we were uh, recently addressing another, um, well, it's not a law, obviously. It's sort of more of a guide by a organization called OWASP. Um, they, uh, it's a, a, a non nonprofit organization. I'm going to say, yeah, uh, that uh, provide different standards and guidance on uh, specific uh, IT aspects. And one of them is the OWASP Top Ten, which is basically the top ten things you should do to ensure um, code quality and security. Now, you would think that that is sort of the most technical and binary thing that you can do is, you know, preventing cross-site uh, script forgery and all that kind of stuff. Um, but one of their top ten is now actually involving culture. Yeah, they, they are, have really specific, deep technical stuff about how to mitigate these top ten uh, risks you're facing as a, a web application out there in the Internet. But um, one of the core things they they mention in in uh, the introduction and throughout the whole document is you have to build that culture within your 
um, de software development organization. And actually, they, they give a guidance on how to do that, which is the OWASP SAM, the Software Assurance Maturity Model, which lays out over uh, 12 security practices, about 70 activities, um, what you should do to become a resilient uh, security aware uh, software development organization. Cool. So um, that was a very, very cool view on sort of a very specific aspect of uh, culture, which is security culture, both from a government as well from a software development perspective. Matthias, thanks so much for those insights. Thank you. The news. Um, I've actually got quite a bit on my list today. Uh, so, Stefan, I just read um, uh, Munich RegTech, and uh, they're actually, I must ride by their office almost on a daily basis. Uh, they're just around the corner here. Uh, Cleversoft, they just bought a uh, Dutch company called Second Floor. Hmm. Now, uh, these guys do a, uh, a really cool product that produces a lot of regulatory documents like... Um, uh, certain uh, OTC uh, for OTC uh, reports for OTC trades and so forth, and uh, bought a company that apparently uh, fits well into their strategy. Mm -hmm. uh, they're PE backed, um, so uh, really cool news out of Munich. Yeah, and it's it's quite interesting before because we haven't really heard uh, anything about them before. I guess they haven't been quite active in this kind of startup scene because they've also been more they've been around for a while and probably a more mature company. Um, so, yeah, we should definitely uh, have, uh, have a chat with them. Yeah, so Cleversoft, congrats on, uh, on this acquisition. Very cool move. Um, come on the pod. Let's talk. We're right around the corner. Our coffee is great. Um, the second thing I'd like to talk to you about, um, we found a, um, a graph um, that was uh, produced by RegTech Analyst. And um, it basically shows the investment in RegTech from 2014 to 2019 based on sort of the, the dimensions or, or areas of RegTech. And you can see that um, KYC, so Know Your Customer, and uh, AML, Anti-Money Laundering, uh, accounts for 50% of the RegTech investment. So my question to you, Stefan, are KYC and AML startups just so incredibly expensive or are there just so many deals investing in them? Uh, maybe both. Yeah, uh, I think we mentioned this uh, also in some of the other episodes that that area is probably the most mature in the reg tech space because also you could, you can um, you can scale and leverage uh, things that maybe in other areas are still a bit more difficult. And uh, I think one one thing that uh, that happened um, with the pain points that banks have in that area um, that um, there was a lot of investment there, and also from the just from the maturity of the solutions, probably you can you can uh, charge higher prices than if we were just starting out. Yeah, fair enough. Um, my next uh, my next topic is uh, is a really interesting one. So it's a press release. Uh, Thomson Reuters and uh, IBM are working together on a RegTech product. Um, so obviously IBM has their um, uh, GRC solution. Open Pages been around for a long time, probably one of the first sort of in the market. And I think IBM bought it a long time ago. Um, and uh, so they say the solution will digitize manual governance, risk, and compliance processes by integrating risk data from 900 regulatory bodies and 2,500 collections of regulatory materials, then using AI to help boost the visibility of pertinent regulatory risks. A GRC solution that IBM boasts is capable of reading 800 million pages per second in natural language. Now, 
what struck me in this is, well, first of all, you've got sort of two huge players calling their, combining their solutions and calling it RegTech, which is fine. But how is reading 800 million pages in NLP, which is, I'm assuming, uploading and then vectorizing them in any way, shape, or form a relevant KPI for relevance in interpreting regulatory impact and deducting risk? Mm. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I understand what you're saying, and we as experts probably are all having this kind of question, but it, on the surface, it kind of sounds cool, right? <laughs> and I guess that's what uh, IBM has been doing with their, with their Watson product line, where they also, some, for, for a couple of years now, have been trying to break into the uh, uh, compliance and regtech space uh, with also a number of acquisitions and partnerships. Um, I don't know how well that actually works. Uh, I mean, we hear different things in the market. Um, but uh, they definitely have always huge claims. Uh, so. Yeah, but I mean, saying I can read 800 million pages per second is like buying a Coke can and saying it will roll down a hill 500 times. It's like, yes, it will, but it's also irrelevant to the <laughs> use of the product. <laughs> yeah, or like maybe uh, it can go... Uh, 10,000 kilometers an hour or something like that. <laughs> um, and my final one, this is, I think, my favorite sort of uh, morsel of news that I picked up. So it's been a year since GDPR came into effect. And um, in the German market, um, a total of 75 fines um, were uh, enacted. And the total sum that was fined was less than 500,000 euros. Mm. So based on all of the marketing uh, 18 months ago saying basically um, if you don't have a little banner on your website uh, asking you what kind of cookies you like and don't yeah, like. The, the, cookie, then, uh, the cookie thing. Oh, oh God. Yeah. Basically saying, oh, you will go broke and, uh, I don't know, SWAT yeah. teams will knock down your door or something. You know, you know, I found a great plugin for Chrome that auto-clicks those uh, banners away. <laughs> it's perfect. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I think it really goes to show that um, don't believe the marketing hype behind something. Um, privacy always needs to be out, be about being a good custodian for your customers, for your employees' data, and uh, you shouldn't be doing it because of the fines. I mean, not to say that there won't be bigger fines later, yeah. but it's certainly not what uh, what the marketing uh, was. Uh, was saying. Yeah, and uh, anybody who listened to us in the last uh, two years even, either in person or here in the podcast, should not be surprised because that's what we've always been saying. Yeah. Um, was that your very nice way of saying I told you so? Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I would say, prob I mean, there might still be larger things happening, but if you... If you think about how, what were the reasons for introducing the whole thing again, really going back even way before 2000, um, 2018 when, when it was originally uh, discussed in the uh, European Parliament, um, the reason was really to have some more ammunition against the big uh, tech giants. Uh, and uh, I think even there, they're not really uh, able to find... Uh, Find and fine a lot because, of course, they've been taking care of a lot of the formalities. Look, I think that leads us to the top three. Hey. Hey. Oh. Top yeah. three, 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 three. <laughs> It's the top three. We're going to do the top three a little bit differently today because our topic for the top three is agile. Um, and because, obviously, you can love and hate Agile, um, we have 
some great things about Agile in our top three and some pet peeves about uh, Agile. So being positive in nature, I'm going to do the positive. My top three positive things about Agile are the things I love about Agile. And Stefan, in parallel, is going to do the top three things he hates I'm, about Agile. I'm, I'm going to do the uh, the devil's advocate. Yeah? Um, or let's say also how people fail with it. Yeah? And um, that uh, this kind of almost religious fervor that you sometimes hear about is maybe not always right. On third place um, of the top things I love about Agile is visualization. Now, regardless if you use Trello or the you know physical boards and Post-its and whatnot, just sort of putting it into perspective, getting everyone on the same page, literally because it is one page, um, I love it. Uh, I've been in a lot of uh, projects where we had very, very complex prob problems and uh, lots of stuff going on. Designing those swim lanes, uh, the phases, and uh, seeing, you know, a team work together and move those post-its over to the right however <laughs> you want to do it, um, I, I really love it. Mm. Yeah, on the uh, on the other side, it's uh, also often easy um, to mess up with it um, because, in my opinion, people misunderstand it also in some ways. And one classical thing that um, – I guess everybody has been kind of um, at fault with is thinking, ah, now we're doing Agile. That means, okay, let's get rid of all, you know, the quality gates and forms I have to fill out. And basically, we just do whatever you want and we can change everything at a moment's notice and then magic will happen. No. Oh, yeah. Agile means I don't have to write anything down. Yeah. yeah. And the reality is, in, in some ways, you have to be much more structured. Uh, and, uh, um, for example, uh, the way you handle a certain stand-up meetings or so, um, if you let them kind of um, go wild, uh, that is also... Uh, Uh, not useful yeah, and a uh, role like something like a scrum master that kind of moderates this is, uh, can often be very useful if that person um, does it well uh, or um, if not it can also go the other way all right um, on place two of things that i really love about agile is the iterations and the breaking down into sprints right it just it really puts a common goal in front of the team and if you have a team that's working really well together everyone knows what needs to get done everyone knows on friday this needs to happen you band together you get it done and i just really like that activity that that you know full on thing it's not you know people just sitting around writing documents and uh, meeting up in four weeks mm. I, i really like that mm. Yeah, uh, that points me actually in a, in a good direction yeah um because um i think um Again, if you misunderstand this approach with the sprints and um, with the weekly structure, um, that can also lead to problems because um, nothing is free, right? You have to give something up. People might know this classical uh, project management triangle, the kind of conflict between um, scope, um, time, and cost. And typically you can't do like all at the same time. So you have to give something up. And the traditional approach maybe is more around the time and cost where you're maybe a bit more flexible and it will grow and uh, have the scope creep. Um, what um, Agile turns this a bit around that you that you put a quite strong fix on something like time and um, budget for a sprint. Yeah, You can change that in the next sprint. But the scope in some ways has to be flexible. And that is sometimes difficult for people to get. Um, my favorite thing about Agile is that people are forced to get on with it. Um, I've been in too many projects where we've taken sort of a waterfall, a traditional approach, and people spend months and months and months in POCs or in, in functional requirements gathering and fighting about weird things and just finding reasons not to do something. 
and just overall playing um, playing the politics game and winning. And uh, I love about Agile that if you embark on an Agile project and you're agreed on at least the first iterations, the first sprints, you have to just get on with it and start working because there are other people there that are just waiting there and need to start. And so I, I like that. Yeah, that's also my, my number one. It's um, Let's say on, on the one hand, like you described, it's a great tool to kind of not discuss ad infinitum about uh, like uh, going on for hours because really you, you set yourself the structure of, okay, I have certain goals I want to achieve in a, in a shorter time frame. Um, on the other hand, or what, what can go wrong again is if you don't have this communication because in some ways you you need to have a more frequent communication between the for example between somebody who's more on the business requirement side like a product owner and the and the development team uh, if you don't do this um, then um, also things uh, somehow don't come out as you originally intended right so uh, the structure that I mentioned earlier is in a lot of ways is communication structure uh, so how can you make sure that uh, everybody is aligned uh, aligned or aligned of course a l y n <laughs> well done. And those were the top three. All right, everyone. Thanks so much. And short and sweet. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Let's continue the conversation on Twitter. Follow our dedicated podcast handle at the RegTech Rep. Make sure to rate this podcast and send your thoughts and comments to the RegTech Report at Align.com. Once again, that's the RegTech Report at Aline.com. You can also follow Align on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter, or catch up on our podcasts on align.com slash the RegTech Report.